This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit MerchTable.com to learn more and open a store today. Today, we're going to recap some of our favorite interviews from 2017 in no particular order. We've been lucky to talk to so many amazing people, and we're looking forward to doing a bunch more interviews in 2018. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Jack Stratton of Wolfpack. Jack, welcome to the future of what. Thank you. So I'm so excited to have you on today. We are talking about, I mean, this is sort of a theme that goes throughout my show, but we're interested in artists who are really doing a great job of having careers in this weird modern age that we have where it's not straightforward anymore. It's not just get signed to a record label, put out a record every two years, tour, you know, that sort of very straightforward world that, you know, the music business used to be a while ago. And I feel like you guys are one of those bands that's kind of doing it. And it's very impressive the way that you sort of cobbled together this career. Thanks. Yeah, it's a lot. You know, I've learned a lot from listening to your podcast and that There is a subset of people who want to just keep playing the game, the infinite game, just to keep it sustainable. That's what we're all about. Mm -hmm. I love that angle. Yeah. So tell us a little bit. I mean, people may know you guys from your Sleepify album, which a few years ago was the silent album on Spotify that got a lot of attention in the media and raised you guys some money, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was early 2014. And then we did a tour around the album uh, later that year in the, in the fall, free admission tour. Learned a ton throughout the process because it became this kind of clickbait story. So I would wake up every day to my computer just kind of being slammed with like all the heaviest outlets. And then I saved all the emails. And next album we dropped, I emailed everyone and it was just truly silence. Oh my God. (laughs) So I learned, I just learned a ton about how it all works, you know? And so so I, even going forward, I know what it kind of feels like to have a a story like that. Luckily, you know, kind of fun and positive. And I've been thinking a ton, a ton about it since then, especially listening to the Numero group episode on your, your podcast. Mm, Yeah. Just how I got it so wrong at the time. So I I had to look up about Spotify, I guess, about that model. And I looked up our 2013 TuneCore statement, which is what we use. And Spotify was coming in. This is the end of 2013. Spotify was coming in at 150 bucks, you know, on the master. Mm -hmm. And iTunes was coming in at three grand for that for that month. Right. Where I where I had the idea. So I was like, oh, so that was why myself and like pretty much every artist was super just anti this this streaming model 
you know, all my friends were on it. I was on it. So it just, it, it's like a Wes Anderson movie. I think it's huge, <laughs> but like no one's actually using it globally or something. So now it's like caught the, on, I guess even just this last year, maybe it's because we're growing, but it eclipsed iTunes. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. this last month I logged in. Like, it's crazy now. Yeah. And it's, it's so easy compared to the other things I do to, you know, sell music like vinyl, the amount of time I spend on vinyl and the amount of emails and whatnot around that versus Spotify and I'm making more off Spotify. So it's crazy, you know, and then and then the numero group episode, like just totally put it in this new perspective. I agree. I think, I mean, I felt while I was interviewing Ken for that episode, I was like, oh man, am I doing this right? I'm not doing this right. I got to <laughs> like get out of here and go back to the office and fix this. Like, yeah, no, it was, it, he really lit a fire. I think a lot of people have responded to that too, but it's true. But I, I also think you're, you know, you're right for you, but you're also right for the industry because the industry has changed in the last, just in the last few years, just in the last couple of years, Spotify has just jumped forward and become something totally different than it was when we all first were being cautious, you know, because we we're all like, well, I don't know, it sounds really bad. And my statements are tiny. And that doesn't seem good, mm-hmm. you know, and why would I put all my eggs in this basket when iTunes is so much better? Right. Yeah, but I think it's definitely, we've seen this massive change. You know, Spotify outstrips our iTunes by a lot monthly. Yeah. At, at the time, it was super confusing, like, and, and I would watch the Daniel Eck interviews on YouTube and just be like, <laughs> God, this guy's lying to me. <laughs> and now I watch him like, oh my God, he's a prophet. Or, yeah, you know, so. Right. It's just, I guess that's how you change people's perspective is paying them. Yeah. It's nuts. And and another aspect of it was I never once shared a Spotify link. All our catalog was on there. And after the Numero Group interview, I was like, this is probably our biggest amount of eyeballs checking out the band, you know, that Spotify page. And I've never promoted it once. It's just yeah. kind of. Yeah. What, imagine if I did promote it. Right, you know? right. Yeah, I know. I know exactly. It's it's really making us all think about that. Mm-hmm. But you in general, I'm very impressed with you because first of all, you seem to think about the music business part of this a lot. And also you're you're willing to take some risks. So tell me about doing a free admission tour. How how did that work? It was pretty, it was kind of stupid. I mean, I, I mean, at the time I was saying we were going to go where it was streamed the most. That was part of the initial idea. Mm-hmm. To, you know, it's one of, one of the aspects of why people would do it. And Spotify was promising their insights platform like within a month or something, you know, you know, on the artist's website, which I think it just came out and it is insanely cool, mm-hmm. but it, it didn't come out at the time. So we just kind of picked our based on Bandcamp sales, you know, and we, and we went around and I, the, the, the actual mechanics would just, I would just email a cool venue in the town with the few of the headlines and they were, they were stoked to do it. They either just charged us a couple hundred bucks or let us do it for free because of the story. Wow. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then just like the emails, I would go back to them and ask for like, you know, I had this crazy idea of what it cost to play a room, like 500 bucks, right? You know, and then it was back to like the 60, <laughs> 60, 40s and stuff like that. Right. I was like, I know, I, I know the deal, how much it actually costs, but you know, everyone's going to make their money. So yeah, I, I didn't really know typical club deals or I knew like the Ann Arbor ones before that. So I was just kind of going in naively. 
and kind of getting what I was asking for. But I guess it was just because of the press. Right. They expected you guys to fill a room. That's what they were oh, probably yeah. banking on. And did you? I mean, on that tour, were you were you pulling in a lot of people? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, it was insane. Yeah. So, yeah. That, I, yeah. They were they were making money. I mean, yeah, maybe it was a weeknight and they, they knew they could fill it. But, yeah, those were all sold out, if you can call it that. It's free. So another thing I think is really interesting about you guys is you're a minimalist funk band. I mean, that's how I've heard you described. Yeah. So you're not exactly like the typical sound right off the bat. You're not a rock band. You're not a sort of straight alternative indie rock thing, pop, whatever. So it's really fascinating that you've made so many interesting decisions about how to market yourselves and how to, you know, move your career forward because you're really not coming from a standard place. Like, you know, if there's X number of fans for rock music and then there's X number of fans for minimalist funk, I'm I'm guessing that's going to be a smaller number <laughs> just in general. Right, right. Yeah, that label, there's a particular type of song we like to capture the spirit of, which were these Wardell Kazare sessions, like Mr. Big Stuff was, was one of his sessions mm -hmm. where... You listen to like Stevie or Earth, Wind, and Fire, and they're insanely layered and lush. And you're like, well, yeah, I could never do that. I don't have access to that. But the Wardell Kazare ones are drums, bass, guitar, and organ. And it's like there's nothing to hide behind there. You just listen to it. It's like this is killing my mix. And it's just these four instruments. And it's the 70s. So then trying to also do that with just a few instruments and get a bang and rhythm track without the crutch of layering, even though you couldn't really call it a crutch with like Stevie Wonder or something. It's, it's, it's not, but there's no X factor with the minimalist thing. So we've tried to do that a few times with a few songs. And then the, the, then that started being like the first line in a sentence about the band minimalist funk, which is great, you know, what, whatever. So as far as building the fan base off that, I mean, I mean, I like to think of it as anyone who would be into the documentaries that have come out about the rhythm sections. Mm -hmm. like anyone who likes that on any level would probably be into our group because it's very much about that style of making records and e even even the marketing or business aspect. It's like albums and the vinyl does well. So those documentaries have. It's just such a cool, such a cool story. The the rhythm section model. Mm -hmm. It sounds really fun as a musician because there's all this variety built in with the artist. You know, you're not locked into a, a front man. Yeah, I love that. So you guys always have different vocalists playing with right. you. And then what do you do on tour? You have a bunch of different vocalists who come on tour? Yeah, yeah. We have the main dude we featured, Antoine Stanley. He, he comes out to most of the shows now. And a guy in the rhythm section can sing really well, Theo Katzman, and he'll sing. And then another friend, Joey Dosick, this last tour, he opened the shows and then came on and kind of did a set of the stuff he's written for the band. So, yeah, it's it makes for a very entertaining show, kind of based on the Stax review. I think it's in Norway, the particular video. Mm -hmm. But it's it's all the Stax artists with the rhythm section, Booker T and the MGs, and they do their own set. And it's just so entertaining because it's these 20-minute sets. If you don't like this one, you, you'll like the next one, you know? So it, it's got this built-in arc to it. So we're going to we're going to get more into that style of show. Yeah, I love that. And have you pursued getting different vocalists in different cities, you know, someone who lives in a certain city that you're going to? 
not for the live show. We we do it with like horn players. Mm. We'll, we'll bring out some local horn section or something. That's really fun. And in New York, it yeah, it goes haywire in New York. The the guest vocalists and stuff like that. Oh yeah, de- definitely. I once actually I was lucky. I mean, now I know I was lucky. I didn't know at the time. I saw Amy Winehouse perform at Joe's Pub. It was her first U.S. show, and her backing band was the Dap Kings. Nice. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was an insane show, and I was just like, and she was petrified. She like looked like she was going to cry the whole time, which was kind of upsetting, but the Dap Kings were like, I just focused on that. I was like, these guys are, this is the real deal. Yeah, that when that came on the radio, that was huge for me, just the Dap Kings and the drummer Homer, mm-hmm. and kind of that synergy between Gabe Ross engineering and Mark Ronson's like hyping the song for radio. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a lot of what we try to do, try to embody both of those people at once. That is really cool. So, okay, let's talk about Kickstarter, because you guys had a new album in 2016, and you funded it with Kickstarter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you made a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny because, you know, no one, <laughs> we just, like I abandoned a traditional PR campaign just because, you know, we, we do all right. It just kind of flew under the radar, you know. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I love Kickstarter. I've been doing them since 2011. And that, that pledge interview on your podcast really got me thinking, though. Yeah, they're smart. I really think what they're doing is very smart. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and just just trying to get the Bandcamp downloads through Mailchimp is like a harrowing thing now. So <laughs> the fact that it's all built in there with the sound scan, yeah, they're 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 that that got me thinking. Kickstarter is awesome though, the way the design of the site and how cheap it is to use, you know, or, or their fees. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we just did a Kickstarter ourselves to move some overstock that we had in our office, but it's, I mean, incredibly easy to use, incredibly easy and fun. I mean, lots of, now they have Kickstarter Live, so you can do, right. you know, whatever little weird skit comes to mind, or I know you guys did something. What did you do? It was like a... Oh, we did, yeah, we did a telethon. A telethon, right. <laughs> for the last, yeah, like that last day on Facebook Live. And it was insanely effective. Like I couldn't even believe how fast the pledges were coming in. Oh wow! Did you guys wear like turtleneck sweaters and totally look like it was the seventies? I want to <laughs> ramp it up each year because it was so fun and so much more effective than doing a release show. Oh wow! Where your potential reach is the amount of people in that room, right? And and I mean, this was so fun, and it was a great pitch to musicians in town to come and play on the telethon because it's not a show it's not a high pressure thing so people were coming through it was just a it was really fun and not nearly as stressful and way more effective which which is a great recipe I mean I have to say I am really impressed with you because I get emails I got an email not that long ago from somebody who said they were a fan of the show but, you know, they wish that I would tell the truth, which was if you make great music and you put it on the Internet, then it blows up and there's a bidding war. Huh. I know. And I was like, ah, uh, did I get hit on the head and wake up in 1993? Like, what? Well, <laughs> so what when was the last time there was say? a bidding war? That really what you need to do in order to be a successful artist is just make great music and put it on the Internet. Hmm. And I, I'm excited to talk to you because, first of all, you sound like you've got a real grasp of the business part. 
And second of all, you're like super willing to try a whole bunch of stuff and you're you're not like resting. You're not like, okay, I'm going to be at home for a while. And, you know, when you guys over there who wrote about us when we did the Sleepify thing, you, when you want us again, you can call me. <laughs> like, <laughs> doesn't sound like that's what you're doing. No, no, it's a, it's an e-hustle. You know, you got to get your Gmail chops together. You got to be willing to make the cold FaceTime to, you know, the head of, no, I'm just kidding. I've never cold FaceTimed anyone. <laughs> but- but yeah, I mean, I, I I wonder about it because I do deal with like with with Antoine or our bassist Joe Dart. You could you I've done it. I literally just point the phone at them and go live at them doing something, and it goes viral. So that level of talent, I kind of see what that person emailing you is saying, where you want to be dealing with just people you could point a phone at, and <laughs> that's really all the all the work, right? But well, don't we all? I mean, it, it, but the problem is if it was that easy, we would all be, you know, millionaires. That would be <laughs> not a problem. But and my point is just, listen, the people who are making it using the Internet are people who are hustling. Like they're working really hard. You know, these YouTube sensations, they're not somebody who put one video on YouTube once and sat back and waited. They're people who put videos on YouTube every day for like six years. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's they're working. Yeah, the the positive side of that would be what is truly harder, the live hustle or the internet hustle. And so once you once you think of it that way, you know, if you if you think about like the one video that's gonna do really well, that's a lot easier than playing one show, maybe. So I don't I don't know what I'm trying to say. You got I'm I'm I want to think like that person that emailed you like I should be moving all my resources to Spotify because it's no work you know it's like oh I guess Wolfpack's in Japan now because they just open there so it's like trying to get CDs going in Japan is like I'm trying to work it out with these licensors over there and I'm in way over my head you know I don't <laughs> I don't know what is going on so. <laughs> I'm coming to terms with the fact that it has been a lot of work, even though I'm constantly trying to pass it off as not a lot of work. But it it, it is. Yeah. Right. You know, I think that person is not dumb. I think that person is just a regular American. And, you know, we have this narrative in America about, you know, you got discovered at the drugstore. You got discovered walking down the street. You got, you know, someone saw you playing hoops. And the next thing you know, you're in the NBA. You know, it's like these sort of overnight sensation stories. And the internet has kind of amplified that because people don't see how much work it takes to get, you know, it's like you don't hear about a YouTube sensation until they're a sensation, right? Let's say. Right, right. So you missed the 468 videos that they just put out, you know? Yeah. Before everybody noticed them and they had a million fans or whatever. So it's like there is always so much hard work. So it's like I'm just appreciating you guys because you seem to be not only putting in the hard work, but like being super creative about it and taking advantage of all these services that have popped up. I mean, you just made $100,000 on Kickstarter fully under the radar. Like, who knew about that? <laughs> I know. it's it, it feels really cool and it's really fun. And, and like you're saying, it's been to the prediction incremental over the last five years. And that makes me feel safe and I wouldn't want to skyrocket you know, you could Jack Conte from Patreon talks about that in an interview where it's it's really dangerous to do that. And in fact, the like I can almost tell where we'll be January first of next year, and then even 
the next year potentially, and then people like perceive us as a a band kind of, you know, in two years. But to try to overnight sensation it at any point would would be a bad idea. I don't even I don't even know if it really happens to like DIY artists. Yeah, the the crazy spike ones usually have like an international team around it. I'm just thinking of unless it's like famous for being really bad or or there's some viral <laughs> element, you know? Right, right. Unless it's Kardashian style. Right, right. Yeah, famous for being famous. Right. But although, you know, hey, I, I'm not going to knock them because I've heard they work really hard too. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I have a great story about when I moved to LA, I was hustling in comedy too, like music hadn't taken off. Mm. So I guessed Bob Odenkirk's email, who's... You guessed it? Yeah, yeah. He's like George Martin of... For people who don't know, he wrote uh, Living in a Van Down by the River and discovered Tim and Eric. He's known as like this gatekeeper champion of good comedy. So I sent him three of my videos and then he replies back really funny, like one sentence email. I'm like, oh my God. (laughs) So then... (laughs) Then I wait. I'm like, I'm not going to reply. You know, this is like a weird minimalist interaction. Then three months later, <laughs> three months later, he goes, again, really funny. <laughs> on the same thread. Uh-huh. So, like, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to email him. So I like wait a month and I'm like, I want to pitch you something. He, and then he never got back to me because I, you know, better call Saul and all that. Oh, yeah. But I'm just, I'm just cruising. I'm like, you know, got Bob Odenkirk. And then... Like two weeks ago, the thread opens up and this guy goes, oh, by the way, uh, I just found Wolfpack and I'm not Bob Odenkirk. Sorry, I lied to you. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I was going like three, four years just riding, riding this insane <laughs> confidence that was just not there. So it's really fascinating. You know, like it was, it was you couldn't pay for that. You can take a pill to give you that confidence. Right, so right. It was I, I wish we could all just simulate that somehow. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> but that's that e hustle. You got to be guessing emails. Yep. Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Well, Jack Stratton of Wolfpack, I I got to tell you, I'm really looking forward to the next thing that you guys do. I can't wait that's to see sweet. what it is. So thanks so much for being with us today on the future of what. Thank you. I love the podcast. Thank you. Oh my gosh, that makes us really happy. It's never. In the beverage room It's wager with bodies The night's coming soon Come like a lover to me Slay in the dark Meet the birds and the bees
That was Belly of June by Horse Feathers. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. If you're like us, you love a good newsletter. As an artist, it's a great way to get in touch with your fans, bring them behind the scenes, and offer exclusive opportunities. Share your tips for creating a great newsletter by tweeting us at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Greg Cote and Jim DeRogatis of Sound Opinions. Guys, welcome to The Future of What. Thank you. Happy to be here. Pleasure to be here. Yay. So, I don't know how familiar you are with my program, but I started this podcast a couple of years ago because I was tired of the horrible stereotypes about the music business, just, you know, people getting into the music business just to steal money from artists, basically. So... <laughs> No, does that really exist? <laughs> so I was like, you know, I work with thousands of people in this business whose whole job is just to create and sustain careers for artists, you know, help artists become career musicians. And, you know, I would say that music critics are very important in that ecosystem. And so this week we're doing an episode talking to music critics about what they do and why they do it and how they're relevant these days, which, you know, is probably a a topic for hours of debate. <laughs> <laughs> How long is the podcast? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so tell me, I mean, you guys have been doing this for a long time, like a consistently long time. You guys have been in rock criticism. You've been, you know, crazy music fans, just like the rest of us. How do you feel about the state of music criticism just right now in 2017? Well, it's changed a lot, hasn't it? I remember, you know, as a kid growing up, you know, you were, there was probably a dozen critics that were kind of national names, and you, you you read them pretty religiously, or at least I did, if you were interested in that sort of thing. If you were interested in music, if you were interested in writing, chances are you read Chris Gow and Griel Marcus and Dave Marsh and Alan Willis, who was a big favorite of mine. I grew up reading uh, Lynn Van Matry, who was one of the pioneering first female critics, you know, in America. She was the first music critic at the Chicago Tribune, a job that she held down until the late 80s, from the late 60s to the late 80s, and then I took over. So now you've, you, you name a band, and there's probably a critic to go with it now. You know, it's, it's, there's probably almost as many critics or people writing about music as there are bands out there, and that's, that's saying a lot. So it's become more ubiquitous, and you know, they're, they're, it's almost like a dime a dozen kind of industry right now. Everybody tries their hand at it. I think what's different is that you're not seeing the career sort of being forged in music criticism the way you would have in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, where, where people were doing this for a lengthy period of time and, and establishing a name and a reputation, you know, for better or worse. Not necessarily a great reputation, but people knew who they were. And I'd say it's a lot tougher now to name the top critics from a new generation of writers simply because the exposure is so diffuse right now. 
Yeah, we're in the era of branding. People know about Pitchfork, but how many Pitchfork writers can they name? Stuff like that. You know, I don't think this is a bad thing, the fact that people are able to get their opinions out there, you know, any more than I think it's a bad thing that music distribution has become so much easier thanks to the net. If we leave aside the question of commerce, and I'm slightly to the left of Noam Chomsky, I think if you work (laughs) hard and do something well, you should get paid for it. You know, look, if you're going into writing of any kind, but especially criticism, you're never going to get paid as well as, you know, working at the commodities exchange. And you know that, and you accept that, just like being an indie musician. You know, so you're not in it to get rich, but I think you should be paid for your efforts. But I think that the problem with our world today, with our culture, is not that there is too much intelligent conversation about art. How could it possibly be? There's a lot of opinion. We are awash in more opinion than at any point in human history because the net has made communication so, you know, uh, easy, readily accessible. And everybody, you know what they say about opinions, you know, everybody's got one just, just like, like they have a <laughs> Right, you know, I mean, I teach reviewing the arts at Columbia College and these are smart art students, filmmakers, fashion designers, video game designers, uh, and even a few errant stray journalists. You know, how how can there possibly be too much passionate, smart conversation about the art? But there, there there's more opinion than ever and less criticism. People spouting off. You know, you go to Yelp and there's a review of the pizza place down the block. And 90% of the reviews are, the pizza at this place sucks, right? Well, that's not a review. The review is, the pizza at this place is overpriced. The crust is soggy. There's not enough cheese. I mean, you, you know, I mean, back up your opinion. And even I think some of the, the critical organs are doing this less and less and, and devaluing the quality of the writing. But on the other hand, you know, sitting in the suburbs right now is some passionate 16-year-old girl who is going to rave about the Regrets album, pro or con, and, and write this from the heart review of it. And, and that's wonderful. And she can potentially reach as many readers as John Perella's in the New York Times. And that cannot possibly be a bad thing. It's it's so I have so many directions I want to go in this with you guys. I, I feel like, you know, you mentioned Pitchfork and Pitchfork is fascinating because really there was a time when a good review in Pitchfork by whomever, you know, question mark writer, you know, if you got a 9.0 in Pitchfork, you were going to sell some records. And the funny part on my end is that that's not actually the case anymore. That seems to have diffused. That's not as as strong a factor in, in album sales. And that could, of course, be because of streaming, because of, you know, whatever technological advances or just the culture. But it, you're right that, that it wasn't so important who was writing. What do you think about, I mean, you know, publishing is arguably one of two other industries, you know, the three top industries that bit it when the Internet happened, you know, music publishing and porn just lost all their... <laughs> yeah, nobody pays for any <laughs> of that. Nobody pays for any anymore. of that anymore. Yeah. yeah. But, but you know, everything's kind of regrouped a little. See, Greg thinks, Greg thinks that I'm the one who... I'm the only one who ever brings up porn and sex when we talk about the internet, you know. And, but, but it's true. I mean, look, look at that, you know. No, it's just the enthusiasm model. with which you consistently bring it up that, that <laughs> gives me pause. That's, that's the only thing I'm questioning. Now, see, what no, I always say is that as we're moving to a virtual world, there are still some experiences that, that are more authentic, if we use that vilified word in the academy, than ever, right? Why are so many people excited about fine dining right now? Because in the kitchen, 
someone has their hands in that food that they are bringing out to you that you eat. And I think that music is still that same way. To be in a room with a band playing is an experience that will never be duplicated by consuming music on the web, you know, any more than, yes, can you have online sex with a partner? Yes, you can. It ain't the same as being in the same place at the same time as that person. But I, but, and I also think that Pitchfork, you know, I mean, the idea that a good review or a great rave review equated to a sale, I mean, there was a blip of a period there where they helped break a band, say, quote-unquote, like Arcade Fire. And, you know, they raved about that first record, and that became a huge indie hit, and it actually sold quite a few copies more than a typical independent label release would have. Well, it was a very time. good record. And it was a good record. And they helped, and, and then he certainly helped get, get the word out. But I would say the notion that criticism has helped artists sell records is really, is really not true. I, I think there's, there's certainly an element of exposure there that a, a critic can provide to a record that may not have been noticed otherwise, but I, I don't think critics have ever really been a driver of sales. You know, you know, there's been countless bands that have been lauded up and down by critics that never sold in any substantial numbers. Velvet but Underground, I, Ramones, sure. But I think what critics have done the good critics, anyway, have, have created a conversation around art and artists and, and bands that has led to sort of an, an environment where bands could thrive. You know, a band like the Velvet Underground was a critic's favorite for a long time, and nobody else cared. But over time, the Velvet Underground's reputation grew and grew, uh, not to the point where they're selling as many records as the Beatles once did, but they're certainly you know, a, a name that uh, everybody knows and understands what, they, what their music represented and the, and the artists who were in that band who have had gone on to solo careers, John Cale, Lou Reed, whatever, you know, are, are respected artists who have had successful careers. So, you know, uh, critics do play a role in this dialogue, this conversation around music, and I think that's probably the, the key. It's not so much the consumer guide concept, thumbs up, thumbs down, go buy this, don't, don't buy it. It's more about this cultural conversation that I think is, is, is critical to have around any art that is created. Movies, you know, theater, books, music, it, it, that, that's an important conversation, and it's one of the reasons we're on this planet, is to enjoy art, understand it, be motivated by it. Critics can foster that kind of conversation. Well, just to be the devil's advocate, you guys, because I know you hate that. <laughs> sure. I'm going <laughs> to... What about the, the notion? I mean, I, I deal with this a lot in the music business, and we talk about it all the time. What about the notion that the vast majority of people actually just don't like music? And that's just the truth. Like, they just don't care. <laughs> you know, there, there's a small percentage of people like us who are crazy about music and who want to know that the drummer who played on this album also played in this other album by this band that, you know, six years ago that I also loved, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the vast majority of people just really don't care. And in fact, not only do they not care but they're only going to be interested in music for a certain number of years, let's say when they're in college and they're in their frat house and they're all listening to Fetty Wap or whatever together. And that when they look back, they're going to feel fond about that, you know, in their 40s and they'll put on Fetty Wap and be like, I remember the good old days. <laughs> Those you know? are the good old days but of like, Fetty Wap. <laughs> yeah. But you know what I'm saying? It's well, like, it, it's like, what do we yeah. do in that? Like, are we basically all, is my job and your job, are we just catering to this pampered elite of people who actually give a crap about music? Well, look, I think, Portia, the, the, uh, if we step back and say, you know, how many people care about visual art or photography or dance or theater 
or movies, right? Uh, how many people really care about anything, even eating, okay? You know, there are innumerable great mom-and-pop burger joints, right? And people go to McDonald's because it's, it's there and it's ubiquitous and it's shoved down their throat. If I can wax grand historical and philosophical for you, there's a notion that begins with Nietzsche, who, of course, is vilified because he was adopted by the Nazis. But fascinatingly, W.E.B. Dubois in the Reconstruction period post-Civil War also picks up this idea, and it's called the Talented Tenth. One out of ten people you engage with in life is truly alive. They are interested in philosophy and religion and sex and art and music and reading and literature, right? And now this, you know, the Nazis corrupt this, right, and say put the other nine to death, right? But that's not what Nietzsche was saying and certainly not, not what they were saying in, in Reconstruction. When the, African, the notion that the, the educated African-American needs to pick up the people who've been enslaved and newly freed, right? And so, you know, Middle Ages, you know, nine out of ten peasants are happy to come home, put their feet up after a long day of farming potatoes and sit in front of the fire, right? And nine out of ten people today are going to come home and, and watch uh, entertainment TV tonight, which I would include the president's address to Congress, right? <laughs> and they don't really care, right? But this is throughout history, right? And this is, this is to say one thing the critic does, and by that I would include you. You're someone who's passionate and talks intelligently about music on your podcast in your life, right? One of the things that, 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 that we do as fans, uh, lovers of art, uh, as critics, all of those I think are synonymous, is say to people, your life will be better if you listen to Savages. Listen to it now, <laughs> right? You know, and, and that's, that's what we're doing. You know, and I, I don't, that makes it sound more noble than it is, you know, putting a, a buy it, try it, or trash it on a record, you know, as we do on the show, or, you know, a 9.6 on the scale or whatever the freak pitchfork wants to do. <laughs> but I mean, that's essentially what we're doing. We're, you know, like life is worth living because of these things. And it's, it, that's true of, I, th- I think, whatever art form you're critiquing. Well, I agree with you because this is my job and because I do believe, you know, that when we put out a record that I think is wonderful art, that even if only a thousand people also love it, that it was worth it. Those are the thousand people you'd want to be marooned on a desert island with. Exactly. Exactly. And so... Even if they bought it and hated it, because at (laughs) least they bought it and thought about it. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's... The, The critic's not trying to change someone's taste. The critic is trying to get them to examine the world the way they see it. And then I want to consider the world the way they see it, vice versa. It's a conversation. Greg used that word. Obviously, we've devoted our lives. I mean, he's always wrong. My opinion is better. (laughs) He will say the same about me, okay? But really, what we've based the, the whole sound opinions notion on and our lives on is talking about the music. I want to know how he hears something he wants to know how I do. And that's the best way to appreciate art without the appreciator of art, right? You know, so a musician makes some masterpiece, a brilliant painting, a wonderful novel, or, you know, the album that will blow us all away. If nobody's heard it, it's only half the act completed. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the key thing. The, a great, great piece of music needs a great listener. And I've heard that from musicians. I mean, they, they, they kind of acknowledge that it's not just about what's being created, but it's being able to create something and know that somebody out there is going to get it or at least understand it or engage with it on a level as impassioned and 
enlightened as, as they hopefully went into making it. So it, it takes two, you know, and listener and creator. I think where, where things get mucked up is, 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 is the person in the middle, the middleman who wants to control that, the way that music is accessed, the way it's heard, the way it's uh, even made sometimes. But the beauty of the Internet is that it has enabled this incredible transaction to take place directly from the artist to the listener. And I don't look down on people who are, are just casual listeners. I think that's what you were sort of getting at, Porsche, is a little bit that there's some people for whom music is just sort of around. But I think if you took music out of everyone's life, they would notice it and they would miss it. And they may not necessarily be as engaged as the most passionate listeners, but it is a part of their life. And I'm fascinated by the way they engage with music at all levels. You know, there's, there's a way a six-year-old engages with, with music that's fascinating, and there's a way a 40-year-old person who has sort of lost touch with, you know, the music of their youth and, and has not heard a piece of new music in 15 years engages with it. And then there's that 19-year-old kid in their dorm room who's downloading or streaming every new band that comes down the pike and can name drop all day long. And I, Portia, this is a great conversation because it just opens up so many rabbit holes that you could climb down and spend three hours talking about. <laughs> but this whole notion of the hot take has been really a big part of it. And I think one of the reasons that criticism has sort of been devalued is that we're living in a hot take culture. Like if you don't have something instant to say about something that's just come out or, or, or just gone public, then your opinion isn't valid anymore. And a lot of times those hot take criticisms are incredibly shallow and incredibly facile, and it's not leading to any kind of constructive dialogue anymore. I think, I, I think one of the beauties of great criticism, you know, again, I go back to this idea of a really elevated conversation about something that's really important to us as human beings. And the hot take just completely pulls the rug out from under that and turns it into this very shallow kind of surface conversation that's, that ends up with just a bunch of people yelling at each other. Yeah. I, and I, all we have to do to that is just turn on any media source at all. <laughs> just, mm-hmm. That's what's Absolutely. going on. Literally. Well, you guys, I could talk to you for hours, but I don't want to do that to you or anyone else. So, <laughs> <laughs> Craig and Jim, thank you so much for being with us today on The Future of What. It was such a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much for having us on. Absolutely. Anytime.
That was Cascades by Horse Feathers. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Future of What? comes from Merch Table. Kill Rockstars has partnered with Merch Table for almost six years now, and they've come through for us in a lot of ways. Like when the comedian Kurt Braunohler wanted a face towel with his face on it. Merch Table found a way to make this, and it's been one of our most popular items in our mail order store. KRS loves Merch Table. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Greg Saunier of Deerhoof. Greg, welcome to The Future of What? Thanks, Portia. Why is it called that? Why is it called The Future of What? Oh, yeah, because, I mean, it's like uh, future already implies an unknown. Right. And then what implies an unknown. So it's kind of like putting two question marks in a row and calling it a podcast title. That's exactly right. Well, I think the music industry is a lot like that because, I mean, certainly when we started three years ago, we had no idea, Mm. you know, that was the heyday of all this, you know, (laughs) what's going on with Spotify and what's going on with YouTube and what's going on with everything. And we didn't even know if we were going to have an industry in the next (laughs) few years. And Tell me about it. Yeah, and you sh- you know that well because you're trying to be a career indie we're rocker. We're trying to be industrious. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to be industrious and have squeaked by so far. Yes, in a questionable industry. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about today because people are getting pretty complacent about Spotify in the last few months. Everyone's kind of like, oh, thank God. Well, we're making some money on it, so we're going to calm down about it. <laughs> I don't know you if know that's... somebody making money from Spotify? <laughs> Who do you know? Taylor Swift? Kanye West? I mean, uh, you know, what are you talking about? Well, you know, 
some people are some you know our label does pretty well with a lot of our artists do pretty well on Spotify, oh, really? which is surprising. Oh, it's great. It's great to hear. But Spotify is a crapshoot, right? It's it's kind of like licensing. It's like you get struck by lightning or you don't. You know, you get selected for a bunch of playlists, in which case lots of people hear you and stream you or they don't, you know? Right. So there's still a large element of chance to that. But, you know, the the big offender, the prime offender at the moment that people are real incensed about is, is YouTube. And, mm-hmm. and so you wrote an interesting post responding to a Washington Post article about why musicians are annoyed about YouTube. And I really wanted to talk to you about that post because I thought you made just a succession of excellent points. <laughs> oh, no. What did I say? <laughs> Maybe I was in a testy mood that day. Well, something. Your first point was it casts YouTube as the bad guys for paying so much less than good guys Spotify without mentioning what a shameful pittance (laughs) Spotify pays, which is, I think you should talk about that. I mean, this is, you're a working band. This is your livelihood, right? Yeah. Spotify, you know, in the the context of the article, I mean, I agreed with the article and I thought it contained a lot of really helpful information and statistics. And I also thought it was wonderful to have such a mainstream outlet writing about what has kind of until recently been a sort of arcane topic amongst just musicians who are then therefore seen as whiny, you know, for even bringing up the topic in the first place. And so I thought this article was great, but I did notice that things other than YouTube are posited as the example of how it ought to be done. And then YouTube is, is an offender simply because the percentage that they pay is lower than something like Spotify pays. But anybody who's like taking, you know, 60 seconds to look at what Spotify pays knows that it's, <laughs> I mean, it's no comparison to what it has successfully replaced and deliberately replaced. Right. What it's replaced is record labels where people listen to record put out by record labels. Spotify is no replacement for that on many levels. I mean, when, when Deerhoof was on Joe Rockstars, your label, for many years, you know, our deal was always the same and always artist-friendly and, you know, it was basically just splitting everything in half, the cost. And then, you know, in Deerhoof's cases, the costs were extremely low because we were always recording ourselves on four-track and stuff like that. But but, I mean, it's not like Spotify is, is living the profit with their bands. I mean, they, they pay, you know, I forget how many zeros it is after the decimal point, you know. <laughs> it's a lot, <laughs> yeah. Play, right? There's it's a, a lot, lot of yeah. zeros, you know. You, you've, you've got to be a, a PhD in mathematics to be able to say exactly what level of a millionth or something like that, that of a cent we're talking about per play. And that doesn't even count what I think is almost a bigger fact that I can't understand how it's not being pointed out constantly, which is, you know, if Spotify is a replacement for record labels, as far as the listener is concerned, I'm like, well, okay, you know, I used to get my music listening from rock stars, and now I get it from Spotify. It's the same band, and I'm listening to the same music, and it's great. Without mentioning that, that a record label funds <laughs> the creation of the music in the first place. I mean, Spotify is not an advance to, to make a record so that they can then pay us one millionth of a cent per play 
on Spotify or right. or YouTube, same thing. So they can send one billionth of a cent per play on YouTube. But there's no, nothing. There's no A and R. There's no development. There's no pep talk. There's no consultation. There's no in-house design person. There's no friend who does mastering for cheap or there's no like special deal that you have with the factory or what, you know, all the things that were to the great advantage of the artist, if they ever were able to get on a record label and kill rock stars, one of the, uh, certainly one of the greatest labels of all time in the history of record labels. Nobody seems to mention that these things that record labels do for bands, like funding the recording of a record or giving tour support to a band after the record comes out, or they've got a deal on printing posters to send out to venues, or they, they just consult on like, Hey, I think this could be the single from the record or they, they give, you know, pep talks when they're when the band is feeling doubtful about, you know, how the recording's coming along. Any of these things that that made being on a record label mean that you had a music career have been I mean, that are are simply absent when your music career consists of just hoping you get plays on Spotify. Right. I think the the word that you used in your post was investment, and I think that's really uh, a yeah. good point. Spotify does not invest any money at all in bands. Right. So if, you know, from a fan's perspective, sure, it looks like it's the same thing, but to an artist, you know, a label is who invests in you and supports you and, and helps you move from one record to the next and hires your publicist and, right. you know, sends the... The, the St. Bernard with a thing of brandy around its neck when you're stranded somewhere, you know, I mean, record labels actually care and Spotify is not, that's not their business model. They're not investing in bands. Well, I mean, they, they realized that they didn't have to. And why would you include that if you can avoid, if you can make uh, many thousands the amount of money right. <laughs> as a record label for doing many thousands of a fraction, you know, of the work, then, um, I mean, a human wouldn't do that, but the sort of like uh, a, a person who's been brainwashed into believing that the only thing that counts is the bottom line, which is, of course, a, a basic assumption before you can even get hired at such a place. Right. And has found the perfect business model because the thing is, it's like... They're never going to run out of desperate musicians, right? Right. Who want to throw the dice and see if, like, maybe they do get on the playlist. And and for every million musicians who post a video of themselves playing a song on YouTube, well, then there'll be one who becomes a YouTube star, and then that example can be pointed to as why it's a viable model. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's, I mean, that's unbelievably frustrating. I think another point I want to touch on, because I think it's so important, and I'm glad that you mentioned it in your post, is that we talk all the time about having to play whack-a-mole. And I think what people forget is that the YouTube model has taken away even the most basic form of consent from an artist. Like, even if you're going to pay us like crap, the very least artists should have the ability to say yes or no. Yeah. 
And the whole YouTube model has just done away with that completely. You have no choice. Your only choice is to play this stupid whack-a-mole, which doesn't work, and have your stuff up there, regardless of whether you want it up there or not. And and I think that that's, I just think that that's something that people really should try to understand if they don't understand it. <laughs> I mean, I've got some bad news for you, because just last night, I was on YouTube and for some reason was, was looking at the Deer Hub channel on YouTube. I can't remember why I was there, but, oh, I know what it was. It was this morning. It was, it was International Cat Day. <laughs> and since Deer Hub has several songs about cats, I was like, oh, I should, I should <laughs> post some for cat songs. And of course I went, you know, I was just like, okay, well, let me check YouTube and see if there's any like versions of us, you know, playing this song, you know, in some dingy club somewhere. And then I, I realized that, the, the, <laughs> I mean, first of all, some of these Kill Rockstar songs that were about cats were backed up. Uh, YouTube had put them up, thought we had gotten them to take it down, but they're back. And then I, you know, looked into it further and realized that, you know, a whole bunch of Kill Rockstar's records are back on YouTube in full. And I think that if somebody looking at a video of a band and say it's Deerhoof, because this is the case I know, and there's a user called Deerhoof-Topic, what that is, and this is, this is what I'm reporting to you now has happened again in the case of Deerhoof's records, Kill Rockstar's records. YouTube itself has robots that automatically steal your music. You know, any commercially released music is automatically stolen, automatically posted onto an auto-generated YouTube channel. And then that video of that song is now available for free, <laughs> competing against your version that you're trying to sell. Right. I mean, now I don't know what kind of customer would prefer to buy a version than a free version, but it would have to be somebody who already understands the whole story that I just explained right. and feels morally compelled to contribute to the idea that the band might be able to survive as musicians rather than just have their work digitized for free. What I think the music listener doesn't always understand. <laughs> and I think that the Washington Post article only went part of the way to help clarify is that there's an image of anyone like you or me who's raising the question of whether <laughs> musicians have any rights in this era might feel that we're attempting to revive the Napster argument in which the successful musician, the prime example of which is Lars Ulrich, is starting a fight with his own fans. So it's the music listener versus the musician. And the reason that I think that that's a myth and that that image of, of what the conflict is here is so inaccurate is because <laughs> as long as it appears that the fans are fighting with the musicians and that the musicians are whining about the fans, then who will beneficiary gets to laugh all the way to the bank. The actual beneficiary is a, a couple enormous corporations. One's enormous, you know, multi Well, I'm not sure, actually. Spotify always claims that they're taking a loss all the time, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure where... 
where their finances are at right now. And then you're talking about YouTube. I mean, that's Google. That's one of the biggest, if not the biggest corporation in the history of humankind. We're talking a, a, a company that, that makes hundreds of billions of dollars every year from ads. And they're the ones who benefit if, you know, the, the, the fight should be between musicians and music fans versus complete corporate takeover of the existence of music in this world. I mean, <laughs> you know, to the point where I mean, it's not just, you know, bands in 2017 that are, you know, struggling to try and get a few plays on YouTube and get a few cents out of it. I mean, we're talking about the wholesale digitization of anything Google can locate that any human has ever created in past, present, or future. I mean, it's obviously not just the music, the written word, it's visual art. It's, I mean, they, they want to have a free library of everything and pay nobody anything. And I think you're right, Porter, when you call it a business model. It's not like a few slip-ups happened. Right, right. This didn't happen by accident. It happened by accident. You do not become a hundred billions of dollars corporation by accident. It's an actual model. It's a system. And um, when you talk to someone who works for Google, you find that they may be very much like you in almost every way until you get on the subject of this sort of mega capitalism, basically libertarianism, monopolies, and antitrust issues. And suddenly, the, this person who is otherwise very friendly and seems to see eye to eye with you on on any kind of political issue you might want to bring up, like the most cutthroat, you know, believes that capitalism is an inevitable and not even regrettable aspect of human nature or even animal nature or maybe even plants. I don't know, <laughs> you know, that somehow natural course of things that in 2017 with Google having the finances and the power that it currently has, that that somehow is a moral and correct culmination of humanity that has simply been mistaken all these other centuries and has finally found its most natural and true and correct expression in enormous corporate monopolies that spy on your every online move and force you to look at advertising. Nowhere in the model is there any accounting of whether a human being might also be creative for any purpose other than increasing Google's profit margin. There's no space for considering whether a human being might also have human nature tendencies that we might describe as cooperation or families or caretaking or love or helping or sympathy or, you know, these are all equally human characteristics, right? These are natural too. I mean, you go as far back into the, you know, the beginning of 2001, the space odyssey is, you know, look at these, uh, you know, ape creatures or whatever and, and say like, yeah, there are various things that you can call human nature, and, and capitalism is not the only one. Capitalism is a, is a very specific and violent economic system that was invented in the 18th century or whatever it was, 17th, I think it was 18th century. You know, Adam Smith 
it's a it's a superstructure that had to be forced upon human beings. And and when we say violent, I don't mean a theoretically or kind of I don't mean it in a poetic way. I mean it's physically violent, or there's the threat of physical violence in order to force it to exist on people who don't want it. So yeah, no YouTube. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, no, I I think that <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to put it. I think we have been, as a culture, we've rolled over incredibly surprisingly easily to this false dichotomy that you put forward that somehow any kind of dispute in the music industry is between fans and musicians yeah. and that musicians are all fat cats who are just lounging around in their yachts and saying, well, it's not fair. I don't have enough, you know, you're paying me less money and that's not fair. And now I can't get my fourth car or whatever. I don't think, I don't think we've rolled over easily, actually. I mean, I, in a way, I'm glad that you said it that way because, because I don't even agree with that. I don't think it's easy at all. And I think that the amount of, I mean, if we just look at the numbers, you know, literally how many dollars is Google spending to convince everybody to roll over to that way of thinking? That's true. Again, That's a good point. it doesn't happen by accident. Right, right. Their budget is unlimited. They have infinity money. But, but then they, they also have departments, you know, filled with people whose job it is to do nothing more and rationalize what they do right. and find the way to intellectually twist it enough that is good rather than evil. Right. And they, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vast infrastructure within the company that's devoted only to convincing themselves and convincing all of us, as, you know, as you put it, that somehow this is right. I mean, here's a big part of it, too. They're not just convincing all of us with well-designed web pages and, and general air of cuteness and et cetera. They also, you know, I mean, they can afford a rather sizable lobbying <laughs> department. Absolutely. That, you know, Absolutely. That has also convinced lawmakers not to update copyright law that's right or radio law and i know you and i have talked about copyright in the past or publishing you know many times in the past because i've always found it so confusing <laughs> um, but it's like the the copyright law that you and i discuss you know when we're talking about like having songs on a record label, how much publishing if a record sells or if it plays on a radio station or if it if it gets in a TV show or, or versus in an ad or something like that. And the laws about copyrights and radio play are woefully out of date and, and have not been updated to account for the completely different system that's now in use for recorded music plays which is obviously online, digital. So I'm saying that there's a well-paid lobbying force that is hired to prevent any changes to copyright law so that the obscene level of profit, not just profit, but increase in profit every year um, can be continued. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a crazy thing about it. It's not just, oh, Google makes a lot of money. They made $400 billion, you know, this year, and they're going to make $400 billion next year. No, <laughs> they have investors who expect to be paid more, in other words, for their investment to, to grow. Right. And that's one of the, the dangers of having a company that large 
is that past a certain point, how can you even grow anymore? Right. Once you've digitized everything, you know, and you're a monopoly and you're the only search engine, you know, I don't know, maybe Ask Jeeves is still there, but I mean, if you're the only uh, <laughs> search engine in use across the globe, how can you even find any other ways to increase your profit margin, especially when your profit margin is that large? I mean, you're, you're almost compelled to start finding nefarious, very problematic or questionable, morally questionable Right. To be able to, nobody's ever tried to make that much profit before in the history of the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I have a question, a related question for your opinion, because I think one of the ways that Google's been successful is that they have allied themselves to messages that people want to hear. So, for example, the entire net neutrality debate, exactly. which right. I think all of us would agree is absolutely crucial. We, yes. we want the net to remain neutral has somehow managed to get the tech people allied with Google, like the, the people who want net neutrality allied with Google. And then this other message crept in, which is we don't need copyright anymore. Exactly. It's like that little secret message suddenly. And because nine out of 10 people don't care because they're not copyright holders, like musicians. Well, exactly. They don't really notice. No, like I just told you, like I just told you, I am a musician. I've been, you know, my, my entire adult life, I've been a musician. And, and I still, still would come to you confused. <laughs> Portia, can you explain this copyright stuff to me? It seems so arcane. It seems so confusing. <laughs> like the Dear Hopes the Publishing Helpers are still terrible, like they have been for years. And I'm always asking, like, wait, what do you mean again when it's like when you when you use this jargon and that that technical right. term? And what's the, yeah. what am I actually going to earn again? And what do you earn? And what's your, right. you know, it's it's very confusing. And I agree, you know, it's a it's a very obvious and uh, you know so far somewhat successful strategy on the part of these corporate monsters to conflate net neutrality with free and open internet. You know, it's like perfectly nebulous terms so that it makes it sound like it's both championing net neutrality, which I agree with you is is an issue on the left that everybody agrees with, with everything on the internet should be free um, for for me. (laughs) Therefore, nobody... Nobody who created any of that stuff on the internet that I'm using should ever be paid anything for it. Right, right. And that's a problem for all of us who do hold copyrights because, you know, I love I love the part in your um, post where you say that Google's model of digitizing all creative work of human history free for the user has left wreckage where there used to be creative industries and made Google more money than they can figure out what to do with. <laughs> I did, I, that was that was very good, Greg. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, the wreckage, wreckage. I, I re- the word wreckage. I I lifted from Jonathan Kaplan's somewhat new book, Move Fast and Break Things, right. which is about Google, Facebook, and Amazon, and the takeover of the marketplace, and and particularly. His career has been in music and in film, and so he's seen it, and he's had a long career, so he's seen the change that's occurred and, and seen the wreckage you know, as it was being wrecked before his eyes and tells it in a really, I think, in an you know, incredibly clear way. I mean, I really recommend this book. It, it makes a ton of sense, and it's actually a really quick and, and easy read and really helped me to understand more. I mean, I was already, like, kind of, 
getting pretty hot on this before there's a, a friend of mine here called uh, Mark Rebo, a, a pretty well-known guitar player and a friend of mine and, a, 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 you know, a real musical hero of mine ever since the early days of Deerhoof. I mean, Satomi and I, in the early days of the band, were always listening to Mark Rebo, you know, as a musical inspiration. And, you know, your podcast listeners might know him for a lot of the sessions that he's played, like he plays on a lot of Tom Waits records. Oh, yeah. I think he played a lot of the guitar in um, the Departed uh, soundtrack, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, some bazillions of things. He was somebody who was first, you know, bringing up this topic to me about, you know, maybe four or five years ago, you know, attempting to stage demonstrations and, and do benefit concerts. I mean, it was almost pretty small. But even that, it was kind of amazing how even just a few musicians pointing out the obvious that a company such as Google has managed to obscure for the rest of us puts them in such a panic that they bend pretty quickly. And it's, it's really rather surprising. And one of the things that Mark pointed out to me or demonstrated to me, like when we would get into conversations with other people on the topic, is very closely related to what you just were pointing out, which is that this is still an issue that splits the left. So free stuff on the internet as a kind of cause worth championing. And then the other half of the left sees sees it from a worker's rights perspective. You know, if a person does work, if a person has a career, is it, you know, devoting themselves to the creation of things that people use, then does that worker have any rights? This splitting of the left is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me a bit of uh, last year's uh, election campaign because, you know, you, you if you can split the side that's on the left between two factions that are arguing with each other, then the side on the right benefits, obviously. I'm not exactly calling Google right-wing either. I think that would also be a mistake. I think that they're apolitical, and I, I think that's an important part of their strategy. And I think they have more than one leader. There's Eric Schmidt, and then there's that other guy. And, and what they do is they play both sides so that they will win no matter what. It's like those, it's like oil corporations that donate campaign funds to the Democrat candidate and to the Republican candidate, and Google does the same thing. They've got one guy who comes across as a sort of Democrat, kind of more left-wing person that left-wing people uh, like his personality and admire, and then he has meetings with lefty people and has panels with them and stuff, and he, he goes on fresh air and, you know, and talks about lefty-sounding stuff. And then they've got another guy in a similar rank in the company who's exactly the same but just substitute right-wing. And then that way, no matter who gets in office, they make more profit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Playing both sides. Playing both sides. That's <laughs> what you can do if you got the money. Unlike us... <laughs> <laughs> Well, Greg, Sonia, I always enjoy talking to you, and I really appreciate your time today. And thanks for being with me today on The Future of What? Thank you, Portia. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Horse Feathers and, of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. 
For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. Happy New Year. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.